First, let me say that the scepter of wickedness shall not rest upon the land allotted to the justified, lest the justified reach out his hand into iniquity. And I'll tell you what that means another time. But this morning, I want you to ponder this question. How's your inner life? Did you know you have an inner life? This week in searching for how to understand Proverbs 4 and Galatians 5 and and then looking ahead to Matthew 6, I looked at a number of different Christian writers. Two of them, one Lutheran, one not. Uh, one, I believe it was C.S. Lewis, if I recall, and, and the other one was a Lutheran commentary. They both used this language of inner life. And it struck me because that's not language in the LCMS we use. So we, we would normally not talk about it as being Lutheran language, I think. And here it was in a Lutheran commentary. And it got me thinking about, like, what did, what did it mean when he said this in the 1800s, this inner life? And it made me think a little bit about what I've been discovering as I ponder Proverbs more and more. I've really devoted in this next year personally in my study to Proverbs. And what Proverbs is about is the inner life. But, but before we get there, let me just give it to you, like, straight. Why beat around the bush? You're talking to yourself all day long in your head. You're doing it. Sometimes it's words, sometimes it's emotions, sometimes it's images and pictures and memories and uh, slogans you've heard other places. In fact, the more you have stuff going into your head, the more likely there's a bunch of stuff just rattling around trying to find a place to settle. That inner rattling around needs time if you're going to understand what the other words are doing to you, whether it's the words of scripture or the words of the TV or what have you. That's the inner life. And I would contend to you that we're moving so fast in America today that most of us don't have an inner life that we're aware of. Most of us have an inner life dominated by the slogans of the world around us. And what the texts are going to challenge us to do today is to like begin breaking those shackles by deciding to have an inner life that you're in control of. Instead of everybody else. And by you, I don't mean you. By you, I mean Jesus, your king. Who's far more in charge of where your feet are going every day than you realize. If you would just believe it, you'd feel much better about it all. Again, we're going to give this year to learning how to tell yourself that. Rather than having to wait till Sunday for me to tell you. And we're going to devote time in the sermon, every service, every week. To building on this idea. And this is so important to me that I wrote a book for it, for you. It was published last Monday. It's been released into what's called the Creative Commons License. It's not through Concordia Publishing House. I would have had to wait a year and a half to go through them. It's here now. Creative Commons Publishing means it's free. If someone has a digital copy, they can give it to you. You can still buy it on Amazon digitally if you want. I've sold a few. It's kind of surprising because I'm giving it away, but that's okay. The point is, I wrote this so that you, St. Paul, and you who want to be with us doing this could have in your hands a manual that's called Talk Them Into It, The Truth About Making Christians. And is there for you to ponder with me over this next year why we've gotten so bad at making Christians and how we really don't have to worry about it and how God will do it if we just get out of the way. And here's just a couple of basic ideas that make that happen. 
I don't actually kind of guarantee you, you won't be able to not use this book if you try to use it. It's, it's not from my heart. I didn't pull this out of my head. I took two geniuses, complete geniuses, one who wrote a book on how to talk to people and one who wrote a book on how Jesus isn't dead. And I shoved them into one 150-page meditations book. And the more you read that book, the more you're going to feel like talking about that book. And the more you talk about that book, the more other people are going to ask you, how did you learn this? And you're going to say, I go to St. Paul Lutheran Church and I take notes. Because that's what we do. We bring our Bible, we bring our hymnal, we bring a pen, we bring a piece of paper, and we write down what God says to us. Because it's worth remembering throughout the week. And if I'm going to go out there into the world of sloganeering and noise blaring at me, I better have something written down to defend myself. Otherwise, my inner life will just be what they tell me it's supposed to be. And that's not good because, well, let me, let me put it this way. If I left you alone on a hillside for 15 years, imagine that you didn't go insane. You had food. You could still talk because you probably have none of those things if you're really there. But, but imagine you made it through all of that. At the end of that, without any information from anybody else, I can all but guarantee you, you would have come up with about a million terrible ideas about God. All on your lonesome. They'd be really bad. You'd, you'd worship all sorts of weird stuff. Because that's what we do. We make up lies. Because our father, the devil, who broke us in the fall, has made us so that's our native game. We tell lies. You can get this right out of, what, the Proverbs uh, 4, 16, and 17, if you want, that they can't sleep unless they've done wrong. It's who we are. We, we can't act without hurting people, generally speaking. Somehow, even if it's just me caring for my little garden and only using non-fossil fuel materials while people slave labor across the world so I can have my salad. It doesn't look evil. You hide the evil. But the world lives only for itself and to avoid death. And I'm telling you, this is what we don't have to play anymore. I'm not talking go out and run into death. I'm talking go out and know you're already dead. Now, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's start with Jesus today. <laughs> After I talk enough, let's go to Matthew 6. I would contend to any lifelong Lutheran, ah, uh, I'm probably wrong. I'll just confess it for me. I will say that I'm not sure I've ever really believed this verse you cannot serve God in money. I don't mean I don't want to believe it. I, I've, I've always wanted to believe it. But here's what Lutherans, I think, do with this. We say, you cannot serve God in money. What's that? What is that? Is that law or gospel? It's law, right? Yeah, it's law. Okay. So it's law. You cannot serve God in money. What does the law do? It accuses me. It tells me I'm failing. I serve money, not God, right? Okay. So that's good. Repentance. I'm a sinner. Cannot serve God in money. I'm forgiven in Jesus, though. I'm baptized. Thank God I've been taught to tell myself that. Therefore, even though I can serve God in money, because that's all I ever do, uh, it's wrong. And I'm sorry, but it's the way life's going to be. I guess I'll just serve God in money anyway. Because we don't go out and then try not to serve mammon. We walk out and we act like there's nothing we can change. And there's something sick about Lutheranism if it's doing that. There's something that we're missing. I would call it conviction. And maybe it's just the fact that We've given mammon more credit than he deserves. Now, translating it as money is one of the first lies they threw at us. This is when we started having multiple, multiple translations come along. And all these multiple, multiple, multiple translations, they should be seen as commentaries on what came before rather than new versions of the Bible. They're commentaries on what came before. 
And in these commentaries on what came before, they didn't talk about money, thinking about a paper thing you would use to buy stuff. They talked about mammon, meaning the wicked spiritual power behind this age of darkness and lies. A being fallen from heaven who desires to convince you he doesn't exist, and this is all there is. And there's no spiritual at all. That's mammon. He's a person. You know him. He's the devil. He's lost. He can't touch you unless you believe he can. That's the lie we've been buying for 50 years plus. We've been so afraid of people being angry about what we say that we've stopped talking. And instead of talking them into Christianity, we've been letting them talk Christianity out of Christianity. No one can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and mammon. If you find that you did this week, it's not just, I'm sorry. It's, what was I thinking? And how do I change those thoughts? How do I put in place new patterns in my head built of the word that never dies? Instead of the chaos being shouted left and right at me. I'll tell you again, that's the next year. I'm going to teach you. But it begins with, again, pen and paper in Scripture. Because if you're not going to take it in and practice putting it back out, then it's just going to fall out the other side. Because there's too much coming in out there. I can't protect you from it. You won't turn off your phone. It's going to keep shouting at you. That's fine. So learn how to fight back. That's what we're going to do. Let's start with what Jesus says. He says, don't be anxious about anything ever. <laughs> Golly. I mean, if that's law, we're in real trouble, right? Like if that's your bar on judgment day, were you anxious? <laughs> Man, I'm not in. <laughs> but I'll tell you what I've learned recently that I find to be a tremendously powerful thing because I'm just not worried about getting in anymore. Jesus took care of that. I'm paid for. What he tells me now is that my anxiety is me choosing to not believe in him in a given moment. And I have two options when that happens. What shall I be anxious about right now? Here, we'll do this. This is really weird. You guys are going to think I'm so weird in a couple of weeks when you see this. I've started carrying a crucifix almost everywhere I go. <laughs> so weird. It starts conversations, though. Wouldn't you believe it? Crazy thing. So it's, it's kind of nerve-wracking to be that weird, though, right? It, it causes anxiety. To walk around with a giant crucifix in your hand. And um, why? Why am I anxious then? Well, I'm having a fear. What is my fear of? My fear is that you will think less of me because I'm carrying a crucifix. Now, if I can take that thought for half a second, step out of it, and like analyze that. Well, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm afraid someone might think I worship Jesus. Damn me. Praise Jesus. And when I find that my anxiety is sin and I confess it as sin and call it the lie from the devil that it is, those words, negative as they sound to the unbelieving ear, are positive feelings. It is positive to admit your hypocrisy and know that Jesus is enough. I'm not kidding. I'm carrying it everywhere. Uh, you might have to stop me if it gets too weird. Well, we'll see. We'll see. Jesus says, don't be anxious about your life. And he actually means it. <clears throat> He means every time you're anxious about your life, you're choosing to be. You're choosing to not believe what he's promised you, which is that today you will have all that you need. 
And in case you're worried that that means he'll put you in a slum, no, it doesn't say that. Did you see how in verse 32, when it says the nations, the peoples, everybody who's not a Christian seeks after all this crap. And your heavenly father knows that it's not crap. But there are good things he's made for you to have and receive and share, even in abundance. But you must first seek the kingdom, the reign of Jesus, his word, his mystery, his righteousness, it says. And every time you see righteousness, please write justification in your head. His justification. Seek him making you his. Not the other way around. And all these things will be added to you. Golly, and Lutherans tremble in our boots. It sounds like the, 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 the prosperity gospel. Goodness gracious, if I seek the kingdom of God, all these things, what I will eat, what I will drink, what I will wear, will be added to me. How could that be? Now, Lutherans, we really have to slow down here. We make a big deal of making sure to repeat what Paul says, that if you have hope only for this life as a Christian, you are to be pitied above all people. If you think it's really about getting your best life now, you're, you're just going to waste your life and die. But we say that so loud, sometimes we forget that the Bible does say Christianity has benefits. It does have benefits. One of them is called wisdom, which teaches you how to not be an idiot. It's really amazing. A whole book. The smartest guy who ever lived wrote it. And again, I'm going to try to give you as much as I can this year because it's really helpful stuff. But it, it, it's bigger even than just that. It's the fact that God doesn't want this world, the neighborhoods, the cities, the families to be splintered and divided and built on malice and fear. He wants to be built on hope and truth and beauty and eternal things, which again, the scriptures give us. When we don't do that, family, city, country, planet, God has no choice. Knock Babel down. Fall apart, you arrogant people. And every time he does that, we Christians who are in there, we have a choice. We say, oh, poor me. God hurt my feelings. Why, God? Or we say, I knew it was coming. Nation must rise against nation. People will fall. My friends will die. If I die, so be it. Precious in the eyes of the Lord are the deaths of his saints. That kind of conviction and confidence makes it so that tomorrow will take care of itself. Because you know you have a God with you. And the hands he's given you mean that if you build something good and it happens to be inside the wall of Jericho, and God crushes it all down, and maybe you die, you rise on the last day, that's fine. Maybe you don't die, you live through it. You know what he can do on the other side of living through it? Confess to everybody else that it was man and it fell, and your God still lives, and start building again. Christians get back up. What resurrection is. Oh man, Johnny Cash. Ain't no grave. Gonna keep this body down. Proverbs, this morning, chapter 4, verses 10 and following. I can't take you through each piece of it. It's too deep. Um, but I want to give you like the problem with the book of Proverbs that I'm going to be consistently telling you to read and write down from this year. But it's got a problem. It's not a Western book. It doesn't go start to finish the way you want books to do. 
Instead, it builds in very small circles one idea for like eight or nine chapters until it's shouting the same idea at you. And then it completely changes what it's doing and gives you a bunch of little memorable statements about how to live your life out of order, <laughs> like not next to the ones. It's not all about the same thing in a place. It's like scattershot. And then at the back of the book, you get some other stuff that gets thrown in. Now, what makes this difficult then is that you go to read it and you don't quite know how to read it. Like for a while, it's reading one way and then later like, whoa, that was like a lot to take in in one day. And so finding a path into the book is important. I want to try to slowly do that for you this year. Again, just start by knowing that up to chapter nine is like one book that says the same thing repeatedly and you need to hear it repeatedly because you have trouble believing it. And then after that, it gives you memorable sayings that are 99% all the time true. Why do I say 99%? Because a proverb is a little different than a promise. A proverb is a general truth built into creation. It's the natural order of the way things work. But as you know well, anybody who doesn't like politics, <laughs> uh, there's an exception to every rule. Yeah. So train up the child in the way he should go. And when he is older, he will not depart from it. Does not mean that the children of Job never fell away. It means that if you do the diligence of teaching your children not to fall away, they probably will not fall away. 99% will not fall away. God won't let them fall away. So you can be certain that if they do fall away, who did it? They did it. And that's where we got to be careful, right? we got to let room for evil to still be evil and not undo it by giving the Proverbs too much credit. But don't give the Proverbs too little credit. They're always right. You can bank on these things just because there's an exception to a rule doesn't mean the rule isn't true. Or should I say it maybe differently for the last 50 years, just because some people are getting divorced doesn't mean marriage doesn't exist. In chapter four, he goes in these circles, recovering all of chapter one through three in verses 10 through 12. So this is like a summary of what came before. There are two paths. The word of wisdom is the right path. There's a bad path. And then focusing on verse 12 here for the morning, notice how it distinguishes between walking and running. We like to think of running as pretty good. Like if you're fast, we're like you're an amazing human, right? Back in the day, men did not run. They dressed like I'm dressed right now. And you might imagine if I tried to play basketball at the moment, it wouldn't work out too well. So it was thought undignified to run. You would have to lift up your uh, skirt and go. This is why when the father chases down the prodigal, by the way, it's pretty weird. He runs to him. But here, the promise is that you will walk, not run. Because in the old world, you wouldn't run unless you're running away from something. And so the promise is you're not going to run away. You're going to stand where you are. That's verse 12 again. You're going to walk and your step will not be hampered. And then if you run, if you have to flee, you will not stumble. Now again, we got to really cut hard here today. It's very easy for the American ear, tuned as it is, to the fleshly passions. To hear me saying this and say, okay, so if I put my faith in Jesus, and I give my life to the church, and I do what you're saying, Pastor, I start writing down the words of Scripture and, and learning how to say them out loud, then my life will be just the way I want it to be? No. Then whatever life you have you will see as the life God wants you to have. And then it will be the life you want it to be because your will will be brought into line with his. And that will mean better things for you, not worse. Please know this much. 
if you were not a Christian, your life would be hellishly worse than it is right now. And you have room to grow because you still have anxiety. That's a promise we can tell people about. You can use your faith to counteract the lies in your head. That you don't have to enter the path of the wicked. You can keep hold of the instruction. You don't have to let it go. You can avoid the evil way. You can know what 16 and 17 mean in verse 4. Maybe the most important teaching on sin this morning. Verses 16 and 17 sound really weird. The translation's not too great. In fact, I almost want to read it to you in the New King James. Give me a second and I will. Because the ESV so often is just vanilla. Um, one moment. Chapter 4, 16 and 17. Yeah, it's close. But again, they do not sleep unless they have done evil. And their sleep is taken away unless they make someone fall. For, or you can hear that as because, they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. What does that mean? This is about every human ever outside of Jesus. In Jesus, you're both this and not this anymore. But the original nature that we have, every single one of us eats the bread of wickedness. Now, it's as simple as you remembering what it's like to see five pieces of cake and one of them is smaller than the other four, and you know there's six people. Even if you're the good person who has learned to do the right thing and give away the cake, you know that's a sacrifice, don't you? It's because you're born eating the bread of wickedness. You eat for yourself, not for others. What an amazing thing. Can you imagine eating for other people? That's what it'll be like in paradise. You'll eat so you have energy to help, as opposed to eating so that you can make the pain go away. It's kind of how we do it now. This said, then again, the non-Christian only has that belly driving them all the time. And that's what we need to believe again. So when you watch these, I'll just call them famous people. Famous people. People who don't live where we live. They never will. No matter what color their skin, no matter what party they belong to, they fly over us. The laws don't apply to them the way they apply to us. I'm going to tell you that among those people, the darkness of those who don't care for their fellow men runs deep, and it always has. The ruling class has always abused the workers of the land. Why does this surprise you? Jesus says it will be so. Jesus also says he's in control of it all. Let your masters rule you, especially if they're way over in D.C. Keep them there. But don't forget who you really serve, the king. So as you find the real slavery of America today, which is your student loan and your mortgage debt and your fear of losing health insurance and all the ways they keep you from believing you're free to just build again a life and a family based on the scriptures, you're afraid to talk, you're afraid to show your face, you don't have to be inside like that anymore. No matter what you do for your neighbor, no matter how you drape your clothing so that their fear goes away, you may rest certain knowing that the plots of evil men, wherever they are, cannot and will not put Jesus back in the grave. And you are in Jesus. Bring it, world. And the only reason you wouldn't say that is the same reason I didn't used to say that is because I'm afraid I might actually get tested on it. Don't talk to me, please, please. Don't know I'm a Christian. I might be afraid and offend you. 
It's called defense. Christians are afraid of playing offense. Let's look at Galatians chapter 5. Oh, sorry. Glance at 22 and 23 before we go. Notice 23, 22. They, that's the teachings of the word of God, the wisdom Solomon has preached, is our life. Not an idea, not a symbol, not a feeling. Life to those who find them, and healing to their flesh. That word there, to all their flesh, is connected to the word that Paul uses to tell Timothy that Scripture has many uses for life and that the flesh, the bodily training is what is usually translated, bodily training has some uses for life. Now Paul's point is that no matter what you do for your body, you're going to die eventually. So the eternal things are more important. But Solomon's point is that if you find the eternal things, they will teach you how to live with the temporal things better. And it won't, I should say, it won't hurt you the way you thought it would. Remember how earlier I said you'll find it's the life you needed. Sometimes you're working really hard to achieve something. And then everything goes wrong and it falls in your face and you can't see a way through because you believe what you saw is the truth. And every single one of those moments, every time you stub your toe, is instead a moment to remember that no matter where you go, if God puts a giant wall in your way, it's only because he's saving you. And you can tell that to yourself until the liar inside shuts his face. And you can just be at peace and breathe and know that today's trouble is enough and I'm just going to handle that. I'm going to handle that. Now, Galatians 5. Starting at verse 16. We have really four sections uh, you have a, the introduction of the, the, the walking in the spirit versus the desires of the flesh. And that's probably the most important to understand, to understand the rest of it. So you understand this is not a text telling you, do this, don't do that. Okay, so we'll come back to that. Then you have the list of don't do that. I mean, it is bad stuff. And we're trying to dig into that probably the deepest. And then you have this fruit of the spirit, which what we really need to do is spend a day on each one of these words in the fruit of the spirit list. It is there's so much more in these words than our English. Our English is so vacuous. There's nothing in the word love. It doesn't mean nothing. Uh, so to say the fruit of the Spirit is love is not fair. So we'll come back and we'll at least touch on love, but we won't be able to do that for every single one of these words. And then we'll sum up with the promise, the promise at the end of this thing. But, so back in verse 16, that section, 16 and 17, walk by the Spirit, notice the future, and you will not. It's not, and you'd better not, it's, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Walk by the Spirit, and you're going to actually fight against your sin. Okay, great, Paul, how do I do that? <laughs> well, the best part of this is that he's doing it for you. It's a promise. The desires of the flesh, that's your body, your inborn Adam, are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit, that's God, are against the flesh. Now, where is the Spirit right now with the capital S? Who's against your flesh? Where is he? And this is something that also, uh, lots of mystics like to make hay of this in bad ways. But it's a good thing you don't want to forget. It's bad when you say, oh, I have the Holy Spirit living within me. Therefore, what I think is true. That's a really dumb thing to say. But it's a good thing to say, I have the Holy Spirit within me. And according to the scriptures, which are the food by which he lives, he is fighting for me to put my sin to death. Well, it's a much better thing, yeah? You are the temple. 
You plural and you individually are inhabited by God through these words. And the desires of this spirit are against your flesh to stop you from doing what your flesh wants to do. Notice that. The end of verse 17, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. The standard way of assuming what that means is that somehow your flesh is stopping you from the good you meant to do. Poppycock. Remember how evil you are. The Spirit is stopping your flesh. And so rejoice in this. Again, I said your life's better now because you're a Christian. You didn't do that. He did that. And he's here having me tell you he's not done. This is just the beginning. He has not abandoned this country or this side of the planet or this entire people and race. We are all sons of Noah, sons of Adam, and redeemed in Jesus. As long as two or three of us are willing to come back and learn to say it again, he will not let his kingdom fall. If you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Verse 18, notice, everything that comes next is not about do this, don't do that. It's not about how do I become better so I can prove myself to God. It's about how God already saved me, and better is better than evil because evil hurts a lot. <laughs> so I'm going to try to come become better and stop being hurting and hurting others. What hurts others? Well, that's what's next. And the list is so long, it's almost annoying to read, is it not? You're like, slow down, Paul. There's too much here. Sorcery, amity, strife, jealousy, rivalries, dissensions. So I tried to go into the Greek this week on this one. I have, you can see I have all of these. How many were there? 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 12, 13, 14, 15. 15 different words about the deeds of the flesh or the deeds of darkness. And I had this dream. I would look at all of them and tell you about all of them. <laughs> no. I got through four of them. I'm going to try to tell you about two of them. Again, we could spend seven hours probably on this list of dark deeds. Almost all of these things are not what the English sounds like. Almost every single one is a completely nuanced reality. And hopefully you'll get this from the first one. Sexual immorality. I remember as a kid kind of being like, what is that? I didn't know what that meant. Sexual immorality. Like Nickelodeon didn't tell me what that meant. I had no idea what that meant. I knew what I wanted to do and I knew it was wrong without them saying sexual immorality. Anyway. The word there in the Greek is porneia, porneia. It's exactly what it sounds like, right? Pornography. But again, what is pornography? Pornography is pictures of unmarried people doing married things that other people watch or look at, right? That's bad. It's very legal. It's a multi-million dollar industry and it runs the internet, but it's bad. But that's not what porneia is by itself, okay? So pornography is just one facet of porneia. Porneia is a much deeper word. And would you believe the original meaning of this word is to sell? To sell, porneia, to sell. Who? A woman. Into what? Slavery. They didn't call her a slave. They called her a prostitute. We still got them and they're still slaves. Porneia is to look at any other human and see them as an object for your benefit. And of course, the most common way is that men look at women and see them as sexual objects. It's the most common way, not the only way. We do it all over the place. Yeah, Pornea. It's a deed of darkness. It is the darkness. Can you stop looking at others as less than you? Probably not. Can you want to stop? Yes. And when you want to stop, what will happen? You will, a little bit at a time. You might never notice it yourself, but you might care about other people more next year than you do this year. And it'll feel really good when you do. That's when you hate porneia. 
Now, skipping the next couple, let's go down to idolatry because it's a Greek word. You can hear it. Idolotria. That's the word in Greek. Idolotria, which, like porne, comes from a very different root. It's kind of archaic, so no one really thought of it this way, but it's, it's the same sounds. Can you imagine? It's like the word cool. So cool now means like fun, right? It's the same sounds, though, as a word that once meant something else, just cold. You know, chill has the same effect now. Well, so idolatry comes to mean looking at a statue and thinking it's God. It's kind of how we think of it now, right? But what it used to mean was looking at anything that is not God in trust. The word means to see, right? So porneia, to sell, idol, to look at, to see. Because you don't really need a statue uh, to start worshiping nature. Mammon. You do don't. What the statue does for the pagans is it gives them a focal point. And they realize, this is, this is just wisdom here, uh, that, that in nature as a human, it's good for you to have a focal point. Like in your room, in your house, at the hearth as a focal point, it's good for everybody as you gather around it, right? So in a church, a statue of Jesus that shows us what he did long ago so we can remember that he's risen and coming again, it's a focal point. There's nothing idolatrous about it unless you trust something else. We don't trust the wood We trust the risen Jesus. The pagan doesn't trust the wood either. He trusts the sky or the moon or some weird thing like that. But the point is that they look at something for, I can't grab my phone now. They look at something for hope. And I know what I look at for hope all the time. Oh, the orientation is locked. To see, to look at, to seek answers. Now, I'm not saying Never use your phone again. I'm saying most people are worshiping their phone. Christians, you don't have to worship your phone. You have a different God. Idolatry. Paul's point in all of these is that we would set ourselves apart from them in our minds. That we would not want these things anymore. And when we see them in ourselves, we would talk about them. The reason we confess our sin every week as we come together is not so we can just kind of get through it and get out and have our grace and be done like some Roman Catholics. The point of it is that we would actually have conviction to be different again and again and again, to stand up when we're knocked down, to believe that when you're resurrected from the dead, you don't get to stay dead. And you just keep believing that until someone does put you in the ground and you still won't stay dead. Because you know in the last day you're going to rise. And the fruit of that reality, the, the, the impact or the outward reality of God causing faith in you by his spirit through words about Jesus that talk you into Christianity, it results in these other things we call the fruit of the spirit. Not a list of things you better do, a list of promises you're going to do in increasing measure until the day you only do them. Will there be ups and downs? Will it be like a little growth curve where you have bumps and downs, better days, worse days? Absolutely. Stop looking at yourself. Don't fruit test. Just believe the fruit's good. And so let's look at love here again. Most vanilla word in the world. It's just so, such a useless word in America. I, I, I want to train myself to stop using it, period. Even though I tell my wife I love her all the time, but it's got to be a better way than that. Because the difference between this word, agape, and another great word, Philadelphia, And and other words that say love in the New Testament is significant. Now, I'm not going to go into all of that this morning. I'm going to tell you the difference between just straight up this one, agape, and all other kind of normal ways humans use the word love. 
I'll use my rabbit. We got a rabbit. My, my wife bought a rabbit. We love a rabbit. It's a great rabbit. I love the rabbit. I go up to the rabbit. I hug the rabbit. And I pet the rabbit. I say, rabbit, I love you. It's like a little puppy, little cat. It licks you. Why do I love the rabbit? Well, when I pet the rabbit, I feel good. I need what the rabbit gives me. And when the rabbit gives it to me, I love it. You know what I'd do if that rabbit bit me? They asked the kids what I did with the hamster when it bit me. I stopped touching the hamster, right? No more petting hamsters after that. Yeah. So if the rabbit bit me, because I don't really love the rabbit. I love what I get from the rabbit. I'm tickled by the rabbit. That's not love. Zeal, passion, not love. Agape doesn't need. Agape gives. Agape is the decision to love another regardless of what they do to you. Agape is what led the great leaders of our past, like Jesus, to know that violence is never the answer. Agape is what makes you brave enough to let yourself stand there and have someone yell in your face or even kill you because you believe on the other side of that the word of God still might convert them. Agape is the power to forgive your spouse when they have need love and you need give love at that time to work through the struggles between you, to forgive your children when they walk out in the world and bump their head and come back again. Agape is giving love. And the fruit of the Holy Spirit of God promises that through the death and resurrection of Jesus that is sealed upon you, guaranteed opinioned upon you, preached upon you, talked into you again and again, this agape, which is his for you, will not be able to leave you without it spilling out again. Now, if you start looking for it, where am I sacrificing for God? You're not going to find it. You're not going to ask for it. I'll give you one more story. This one shocked me this week. And I, I don't want to come off as pedantic here, but I went down to Rockford Roasting this week for the first time in a while. I hadn't really been down there for a couple of weeks. And I know Rockford's never been the safest place. I'm not from here. I'm from San Diego. It's a little different. And so, uh, but I, you know, I've always liked Rockford Roasting, but I went down there. I had my crucifix. That was new. Um, and, and I sat outside, you know, where there's like that little kind of square you can sit with your back to the street, right? And I was sitting there and I started reading through the lectionary for the week. I, what I try to do every morning is get into the text. And um, I had a memory from Twitter come up. Two. One was the image of a white man being beaten by Antifa. And one was a tweet from a black man who said, I can't wait to find me and kill a white man. And I thought at that moment, downtown really, I get it, I think, now. I got really scared sitting there with my coffee. Had my, my AirPods on. I'm in Rockford, I'm a white guy. I got my back to the street. I started to feel pressure mounting on me. I opened my Bible. I was reading the Psalms. I mean, it was really heavy. And at the moment of greatest fear, would you believe it? There was a shadow to my left. And would you believe it? I turned and behind me was a black man. God help me. I said, man, you got any cash? I said my normal answer. No, I don't carry cash because I don't. And then I realized I'd lied. Wait, I have a dollar. I put a dollar the day before, by a verse in Ecclesiastes that I wanted to find again to remind me of the not value of money. 
found my dollar. I pulled it out. I put it in that guy's hand. I said, now, you have to let me preach to you. And I told him about how evil men ruin men's lives against their will, but God does not abandon them. Now Christ is risen. I told him how God had brought he and I to that moment for our sakes, mine and his that day. I told him, I hope I see him again. I've been carrying a card in my pocket ever since. It's from a little game called Werewolf. I I use this game and some of the images out of it to remember to pray for certain people. I assign you an archetype. So I'm now carrying a little card that has the picture of a ghost on it. I don't know the man's name, but I hope to see him again. And I'm going to have a dollar with me when I do. And I'm going to preach to him again. Because I don't care about what America's doing anymore. But I am done being afraid, period. Jesus is risen. And it's time to walk by the Spirit with the confidence that will cause people to follow you because you're not following yourself anymore. Jesus has you. After the promise that the fruit of the Spirit in your life will be comfort and consoling peace and steadfastness to wait out trials and the goodness that knows justice must be done for the good of all and the self-control that knows that the anger of man never is about the justice of God. All those things, notice, highlight, underline, verse 24, belong to Christ Jesus, and that's you. Those who belong to Christ Jesus. Have, past tense, over, done, crucified, this flesh. Where? Golgotha, 2,000 years ago. Where? Now. In the hearing of these words, in the faith alive again, where? In the waters of baptism where the triune name of God called you to him, and where? The meager supper we feast upon together that is so much more, if your faith will believe it. Those who belong to Jesus have crucified the passions and their desires. The antidote to worry is to remember the reign of Jesus Christ and seek it. And I promise you, my friends, we're not done. In the name of Jesus.